what are your initial thoughts? My initial thought was, this is probably one of the craziest interviews I'll ever do. Welcome to Newhouse Impact, a collaboration between the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications and WAER. I'm Kevin Kloss. On this episode, I have the opportunity to chat with Newhouse Professor Roy Gutterman. We discuss First Amendment rights as it pertains to witchcraft, hexes, curses, and exorcisms. Let's jump in. Roy Gutterman, thanks so much for coming by today for what I think is going to be a unique but very interesting conversation. Oh, thanks for having me. So you recently published a paper, Hexing, Vexing, and Flexing, a look at the legal and First Amendment implications of curses, spells, and witchcraft. The title alone is intriguing. What I think is more intriguing is sort of the launching off point for this is with Brett Kavanaugh. Talk me through how you became aware of this area that you included in your paper. Well, we can thank a coven of witches in Brooklyn for putting this on my radar. Uh, I do a fair amount of media coverage, um, interviews, and backgrounders on a range of free speech, free press issues, First Amendment issues. And I got a uh, random email from a reporter who was covering a um, a uh, witches hexing of Brett Kavanaugh back during his confirmation hearing back in um, 2018. And uh, the reporter was almost sort of sheepish in even asking a professor a crazy question of whether there's any potential legal issue associated with the hexing of a soon-to-be Supreme Court justice. So you're talking to this reporter. You've obviously spent a lot of time in communications and as it regards to law. What is your initial thought when you're on this conversation? Is there even any sort of point of reference you have for this? What are your initial thoughts? My initial thought was this is probably one of the craziest interviews I'll ever do. Um, and I'm fine with that. I'm fine with you know having my role to help educate the public and comment on public issues. But it raised some real novel questions in my head. And it started to get me to think of, well, could there be a legal issue with this? Could there be any legal liability? Would the justice, or the future justice in this case, or any other subject of a hex, curse, or spell have any legal liability or any legal recourse? Because, let's face it, whether you believe or don't believe in this stuff, I don't think you want to be the subject of a hex, or a curse, or a spell. I think that's a very fair assessment, a very fair point for you to make. At what point did you decide, hey, I'm interested enough in this that I'm going to go and I'm going to pursue this to the point where it's a 33-page paper, very delightful read, I will say, but that's a lot of work to put into something that, as you mentioned, was the weirdest interview you'd ever done. I wrestled a lot with this topic. Uh, you know, Just look at the date on this. My initial f- contact with this was 2018, and here we are in 2023. So I did some initial research, and I started doing some outlining. And I thought, you know, there's, a, there's probably a legal issue here. There's definitely a legal issue to analyze. But how crazy am I going to look if I'm the one that writes that paper? So I'd write it, work on it, and then I'd put it aside and say, you know what, I've got you know, more important, uh, more substantial, uh, more respectable areas of law to concentrate on right now. But then every now and then I'd come back and say, you know what, maybe, there are, maybe this does have legs and um, I'd spent a little more time on it, and I went down the hall and talked to one of my colleagues, uh, Nina Brown, who also teaches First Amendment uh, material. And I said, I said, Nina, how crazy do you think I would be if I wrote this paper? 
And Nina's a good judge of, of character and, and, and the law. And she said, hey, you won't look too crazy. And um, again, handled, handled uh, academically I, and, and, and realistically, I think it doesn't look that absurd to have this clinical legal discussion about potentially serious legal issues. Now, and I think this is true perhaps for some people listening. It was definitely true for me when I started thinking about this in anticipation of this conversation. The idea of maybe spells, hexes, and curses and it being something that society has to deal with that almost feels like a dated conversation. So as someone who's going through and trying to research this, what is the starting point for you on this? Um, my, my starting point was to go into some legal databases, you know, uh, LexisNexis and Westlaw. These are databases that have all uh, judicial reported judicial opinions, official um, appellate decisions from from courts, from the U.S. Supreme Court all the way down to mm-hmm. uh, every state. And you can do general general searches. You can search a word. So I started doing some just general searches, and some interesting cases started to pop up. Now, the thing that was interesting to me when I was reading through your paper is not just the initial point that we kind of brought up, which is, you know, are are the witches liable in some way for a curse or a hex? But also when the when the there and to spill the beans a little bit, after that hex is placed or it is attempt to be placed, there's a priest who then performs an exorcism, so to speak. And then the question became, has he infringed on the witch's First Amendment rights? It is deeper than I expected at face value. Uh, deeper and perhaps uh, calling for a higher authority than, than, than both of us. Um, yeah, I, I found some almost tongue-in-cheek humor after the uh, witches in Brooklyn announced uh, the, their hex that uh, the chief exorcist of uh, the San Jose Diocese in California issued an exorcism. He held an exorcism, but... Um, he did. Uh, he did. Uh, well, he was interviewed by uh, a newspaper, a religious newspaper, and he did frame it in an interesting way. He said, "You know, that this con- so-called conjuring of evil is not a free speech issue," which just raises the question to me: of, Well, whose free speech is he talking about? And that—that's a central theme in a lot of our, our First Amendment discussions. You know, whose speech are we really trying to protect, or trying to limit, or trying to punish? And when we, uh, when, I, when we frame this issue with the potential for either civil liability or criminal liability, it does have the potential to rein in a group or an individual's uh, right to speak. And in this case, it would be you know, holding the which is legally liable or legally responsible would, in effect, impair their ability to, to speak. Now, one of the areas that you dive into in this paper is really sort of unpacking the history of hexes, curses, and witchcraft. As you dug into that, as that sort of that first step sort of in the paper for someone who's reading through it, did that research give you any insight into where you were ultimately going to land? Um, I mean, the, the short answer is not really because I was looking at it from a 21st century mm-hmm. uh, legal liability perspective. And when you look at the history of uh, of trying to curtail or punish or rein in uh, spells, it really boils down. It really comes down to, in some ways, extrajudicial conduct. In other words, mobs and crowds exacting justice according to their mm-hmm. their their terms. Uh, but even in the United States or the the colonies, you know, the Salem witch trial 
is perhaps the the clearest example we have on uh, on U.S. soil of um, both operating under the imprimatur of law, the color of law, with these sham trials and traditional mob mentality. So we you know we do have a history here, uh, and again, American history is pretty short lived uh, compared to human history, but we do have examples on U.S. soil. And, uh, you know, that, that was sort of the, the, the starting point in some ways. You know, at least in some level, we're dealing with the topic of supernatural, right? And how that can also, through this paper, also touch on maybe religion as well, depending on, you know, the witches in question and maybe what they believe. And that religion clause in the First Amendment, in the case with Kavanaugh, how closely interwoven were the aspects of speech and religion? I'd say they're extremely interwoven. And... When you look at contemporary Supreme Court uh, jurisprudence, that intersection is more than just an intersection. We've had a, we had a recent case uh, this last term with the Supreme Court involving a high school football coach who prayed after you know mm-hmm. had his prayer circles on on the field after games, and he lost his job and then litigated all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And ostensibly, that would be a religion case. That would be. Uh, Either a free exercise or or a state establishment uh, religion challenge, but the Supreme Court most recently viewed that as a speech case. So we see this uh, interweaving of speech and religion in some recent cases, and there's going to be another case this term involving a a website designer who doesn't want to perform, doesn't want to build wedding websites for 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 same-sex couples. We saw it a few terms ago with a baker out of California who didn't want to bake a cake for a gay couple. And on those issues, they were saying, well, this is my First Amendment right as a, uh, as a you know, under my religion to not perform this sort of uh, speech and that I have this right to do so. And it just raises the question, is baking a cake a First Amendment-related activity? Well, the Supreme Court said, well, maybe it is. But this term, the court's going to come to a a closer call on that one. I want to just read a a passage from uh, from the paper when uh, you were were quoting an occult scholar who said, the critical factor in Heck's death is belief. If a person believes that a witch or sorcerer can make him die by cursing him or pointing a finger or a bone at him, he probably will expire. And no amount of Western conventional medicine can save him. Hex death is largely a self-fulfilling prophecy. That is a pretty direct statement from a scholar who has spent a lot of time studying the occult. But how does a statement like that stand up in court? It gets to belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it raises the issue of, well, what's the proper legal venue for this? If it's criminal, we've got to figure out a way to, to categorize this as a crime. Simply saying something bad to somebody is not a crime, um, yeah, but you know, cursing at somebody is not a crime. Insulting somebody is not a crime. So the closest criminal um, standard we could come up with or we could, we could look to would be something like a true threat. And again, and this is another issue that there's some vagueness on, and the Supreme Court just granted certiorari to another true threat case um, last week. So... The question is, you know, does that hex or curse or a spell equate to a true threat? And, you know, a traditional true threat is I'm going to 
commit some act of violence on you specifically at this location or at this time, a very specific threat. They would place somebody in fear, and that, that alone could be the, um, the crime. Again, I'm not quite sure calling on a higher authority rises to that same level as a true threat. On the civil side, however, you know, we, have a, we could also have a closer call under the, the tort doctrine of uh, intentional infliction of emotional distress. Now, the intentional infliction of emotional distress claim, which in itself is a mouthful, does require certain proof that the statement was either intentional or reckless, that it was outrageous, and that it's causally connected to some sort of physical manifestation of, of harm and, uh, and suffering. You've got to prove all four of those elements, and that, too, is not an easy task, even under a civil standard. I'm glad you brought up the, the phrase true threat. It's a phrase that appears multiple times throughout the paper, and you're right. Something I did want to touch on was the aspect of true threat as it's related to witchcraft, curses, and hexes. You kind of alluded to it. At the end of the day, that, that, that does come down to belief. It comes down to perhaps validation of what someone believes in someone's religion. It would seem like a slippery slope to start to decide, yes, we, we are going to say that this religion is, is accurate in the way it is acting and that this one is not. Is there any sort of legal precedent or cases that have had to make that decision in, gar in regard to religions and what is a true threat? Um, I mean, the case law that, come, that, that, that touches on hexes and spells uh, usually does it tangentially. So it's an element in a like criminal defense. Some act of violence happened, and the defendant says, well, I did it because I thought this person put a spell on me, or this was a self-defense because they put a, they, they put a curse on me. There was one case I read um, where the defendant thought that a hex was placed on his pet parakeet and it died, and that that's why he committed an act of violence. And I am not a mental health expert, um, but, you know, belief uh, it, it can be subjective. And people look for all sorts of things to justify or to explain the unexplainable. Um, so, you know, most of these cases that, that do involve um, hexes and curses really do come from colorful circumstances, but it's, you know, I, the courts are usually, the courts are almost always unavailing. Now, you yourself refer to this research as quirky at times. Was there a, a part of your paper or part of your research that you felt like specifically lends itself to that more quirky aspect? Just looking at this issue, you know, the, the second thing you do, the first thing any, anybody does when they're about to write a legal paper is you go and you check the databases to see if anybody's written this before. And surprisingly, to my, to my shock and surprise, nobody's written this paper before. So, you know, legal scholars like to find the gaps in, in scholarship, and they like to write on novel issues, uh, or they like to be the first one to write on a new issue. And um, this is obviously not a new issue, but nobody's written this paper before, which I still find kind of surprising. You know, the witches, for, for a little bit of context, they were holding this at, at their store, and that from what I read in your paper, it was not just Brett Kavanaugh who, who, who was the target that evening. There were, there were other people. I believe President Trump at some point is mentioned as well. And does in any way the volume of people involved in the cursing 
Does that change the legal standing at all versus if, hey, they're, they're actively cursing or hexing one person? Does it change if it's closer to half a dozen? Um, that's an interesting question from a, a liability standpoint. It is conceivable that you could sue a group of people who cause harm. I mean, if there are 10 people who, I don't know, commit, uh, commit an act of violence on one person, then each one of those individuals would be liable and it would be up to the, you know, the prosecutor or the plaintiff to prove that each individual had a role in that action. Um, you know, with, uh, with this case involving uh, the hex on Kavanaugh, it was really, when, when you really look at it, it was a group of dissidents or opponents who were looking to, you know, get their word out and maybe express themselves on a highly controversial public figure and, uh, you know, widely unpopular public, public figure in many circles. Now, was this a case that was ever actually heard, or is, are we all theorizing as in, if this case was to come to light, this is how we think it would, would play out? This is a typical academic analysis of something that never actually happened. I mean, and the, 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 the group did convene, and they, mm -hmm. they had a highly public event. They also charged 10 bucks a head to get in. I guess, you know, it's sure. an investment. Perhaps it's an investment. But... Um, to, you know, there's been no litigation. Again, Kavanaugh, a sitting Supreme Court justice, would probably not want to even pay any attention to this, and he probably didn't pay any attention to it. Uh, same with uh, President Trump. I mean, he was also a target to this uh, this hex, and I don't believe he acknowledged it. I can understand why perhaps uh, people of their stature would think that they don't want to get involved with something like that. But in the regard to the exorcism and the free speech rights of these witches, if that had been heard, what would the ruling have been? Would the ruling have been you think that their free speech had been impeded on, had it been obstructed? Had there been any legal action taken against these witches, it would have been most likely dismissed at the procedural level, at the procedural phase, a motion to dismiss. Again, you know, there was no cognizable harm, right? Again, you'd have to You'd have to prove that this caused that this speech caused this outcome, and to date, I don't think you know Justice Kavanaugh has suffered any real maladies other than being satirized on Saturday Night Live and accosted outside his house. But um, those are different issues. This didn't come to the court level, as as we said. But you spent a lot of time looking back at the history and then maybe even some more some more modern things. Have we seen an instance recently, and recently can be 10, 15, 20 years even, I suppose, where there has been a case in terms of free speech that did involve witches, witchcraft, sorcery, things like that? There's no case directly on point on this. Um, there was a New York uh, case a couple of years ago where the judge actually remarked that you know, there there is a free speech element to this uh, this kind of speech that there could be some First Amendment protection associated with this, but you know the the, the, the situations, the cases where hexes and spells are an element, it's usually very tangential or part of a, a criminal defense. But there, I, I haven't seen a case that's a head-on you know, legal you know legal challenge or you know lawsuit for liability for this kind of speech. And obviously you had to spend a lot of time researching this, uh, reading other articles, maybe talking to individuals. Prior to that, 
how would you have described sort of your familiarity with witchcraft, curses, and hexes? Um, I had very little. I, I think my mom might have believed in that sort of stuff, but uh, you know, everybody wants to believe in something mm-hmm. bigger and higher than ourselves. And I mean, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know what else is out there. I, I, I don't know what supernatural things are out there because I haven't experienced them. That being said, I, you know, I. I did, uh, at least in one of my presentations, I put a whole bunch of good luck symbols on my PowerPoint slide just in case. And finally, just taking a step back, looking at the research that you've done and the completed paper that you have now, is there any final takeaway you have from it that you really, you look at something in a different way, whether that's the way free speech rights could be changing or the different pockets that are of free speech that we need to be looking at? Anything that really stands out to you? I mean, part of the beauty and part of the hazards of, of free speech and free speech law is that there's always a new challenge coming up, whether it's based on technological advances or shifting changes in in how we perceive rhetoric and um, opposition. So um, there's always something new coming down the line, which makes my area of interest um, topical and, and always changing. keeps me on my toes. Roy Gutterman, thanks so much for coming by today. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Newhouse Impact, a collaboration between WAER and the Newhouse School at Syracuse University. Our associate producer is Emma Hudson. And a special thanks to Dr. Regina Luttrell, Associate Dean of Research and Creative Activity. Find more from the department at newhouse.syr.edu slash research. You can find more about this podcast at waer.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. I'm Kevin Kloss. Thanks for listening.